You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I'm joined by Jonathan Boyer to discuss his newest release of The Forgotten 40, which include his firm's top 40 stocks they like going into 2024. Jonathan is the president of Boyer's Intrinsic Value Research and is also a principal of Boyer Asset Management, which has been managing money utilizing a value-oriented strategy since 1983. Jonathan's team has a history of finding stocks that outperform. For example, over the past seven years, the average annual return of stocks profiled in their all-cap publication returned 18.9% versus 15.1% for the S&P 500. During this episode, Jonathan and I chat about how a company makes a list of the Forgotten 40, potential catalysts Jonathan looks for in his investments, why Uber remained on the Forgotten 40 list after being the list's top performer in 2023, Jonathan's thoughts on the underperformance of small cap stocks since 2015, an overview of interactive broker stock, why Bill Ackman has taken a massive stake in Howard Hughes, why Jonathan likes Madison Square Garden Sports Corporation, and much more. When reading the names in the Forgotten 40, I was particularly interested in interactive brokers. It's a founder-led company with an impressive track record of historical growth and profitability, and still appears to have a long growth runway ahead. In the past year alone, they've increased their customer base by over 20%, and over the past 10 years, the total number of accounts has increased by an average of 26% per year. They also seem to have a strong competitive moat given their focus on investing in new technologies and providing the lowest fees possible for their customers. Us investors here in the US are pretty used to paying little to no fees in our investment accounts, but much of Interactive Brokers' customer base is abroad where oftentimes it's actually illegal for brokers to charge zero fees. With the strong balance sheet they have, there's also a lot of potential for new acquisitions on the horizon. Without further delay, I bring you today's chat with Jonathan Boyer. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast. Since 2014, we studied the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Now for your host, Clay Fink. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Jonathan Boyer. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So this past weekend, I received your annual research that your team puts out. It's known as the Forgotten 40 is what you call it. And this list, it highlights 40 of your firm's best stock ideas. And you've actually been kind enough to come on the show to discuss a few of these. I'm super excited to dive in. Before we talk about the stocks, how about you just give a brief overview of what the Forgotten 40 is, what it isn't, and what it takes for a company to make the list? You know, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the Forgotten 40 is one of our most popular products, and it's a little bit of an anomaly for us. So just by way of background, you know, the firm was started by my, my father in 1975 as a research boutique to look for companies the way an acquirer would. You know, what would uh, Warren Buffett pay for an entire business? And that's kind of the thrust of the service. And we're long-term patient investors. In fact, you know, Barron's once called my dad the, the world's most patient investor. I'm not as patient as he is, but I'm pretty patient. And, and my dad's still very much involved with the firm. We do these monthly or almost monthly research reports that take a three to five year kind of time horizon, which is an anomaly 
with Wall Street research, but we realized not everyone is as patient as we are. So since the really the 1990s, we've been publishing something called The Forgotten 40, which contains our 40 best ideas for the year ahead. And they're not our cheapest names. They're names, in order to get into the publication, we had to have profiled it in, in one of our like full length reports. And we think there has to be a catalyst for meaningful capital appreciation in the coming year. So we do this via one-page snapshots, get sent to everyone between Christmas and, and New Year's, you know, gets printed and, you know, we're old fashioned. We still send everything via hard copy. While there, these reports are one page in length, there's a lot of meat behind it. It's not just us sitting around the table and saying, hey, Intel looks cheap, which it's not in the Forgotten 40, by the way, but just, you know, as an example, we had to have profiled Intel before. So people love utilizing it as a reference guide and it's really helpful for me as a portfolio manager when I'm starting out the year, I have a list of, of 40 stocks to choose from. And, and it's a good kind of update internally. Our team does a lot of work to do it. We have four great analysts, plus myself and my father. And it's, you know, it's, it's something we enjoy doing and it's something we think our subscribers like to receive. And part of, you know, analyzing and constructing a portfolio is turning over rocks and having 40 names to sort of look through and take a look at is fun, especially when you have a team that, you know, does all the a lot of the heavy lifting. And in the Forgotten 40, you have the essentially a one page overview of each company. And it's super useful just because you can get a broad overview of what the thesis is and what you guys are sort of thinking. And since you guys do this every year, I thought it'd be interesting to talk about how 2023 fared for last year's issue of the Forgotten 40. Yeah, it was for a value manager. We actually did quite well. I don't know the exact in front of me. I think it was roughly we were up 15 or so percent, give or take, which significantly beat the Russell 2000 value, which was 8%. And it also beat the S&P 500 equal weight. It didn't beat the S&P 500 as, you know, we're an equal weighted 40 stock portfolio and to beat the Magnificent Seven would have been a hard feat to do, but we were proud of the results. We've been doing this for a long time. And it's also, you know, there are times where the performance is great. There are times where it's not as good. What I would say is no one buys every stock in it. I think it's just a great kind of idea generator and it lets people, it gives, we want people to think. You know, what's the year going to look like? What type of stocks do I want to invest in? Uh, maybe I have cash coming in the door in January. How do I deploy it? I think it's really important you mentioned that you have that page where you show the performance of the Forgotten 40, and that's equal weighted, which is honestly unfair. Uh, much of success in investing is how you weigh your positions. And just look at the S&P 500 is a prime example. The S&P 500 heavily weights towards the bigger companies. When you're weighed towards the Magnificent Seven, you tend to have pretty good performance with the way they've done over the past years. But remember, it also works both ways. Right before the financial crisis, I think I read it yesterday the day before, I had forgotten the statistics, but the financial sector was almost a quarter of the S&P 500. Mm. So you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So it's, I'm not saying what happened to financial stocks is going to happen to technology stocks, but when you have 10 stocks that are 32% of an index, most of which are 
in the technology space kind of broadly defined, um, things can get a little dicey. You emphasize the long-term approach in how your team thinks. So I think that a good number of the companies really don't change from year to year just because it takes time for the market to recognize the value that your team's seeing. So how many of the 40 names in this year's report are repeat from last year's and how much does that tend to change more broadly? I'd say on average, it's about 50% turnover because throughout the year, we're coming up with new ideas. And almost by definition, if we like the ideas that we're coming up with, they'll be decently represented in the forgotten 40. Plus, you want to take blasts from the past. So things that we you know, might have profiled five, 10 years ago that we've been tangentially following and see that there's a catalyst on the horizon for value realization. So we just want to pick our 40 best stocks while we're cognizant of not having 40 financial names or 40 industrial names. We just want to have the best, put the best roster out there in a variety of industries, variety of market caps. But I, I think it's, it's interesting that this year's class, 19 of the 40 names are sub 10 billion in market cap, which is the high end of the Russell 2000 value. That's, and the vast majority of those 19 are in the like 5 billion or less range, you know, roughly. So we're heavily weighted, you know, everyone's definition of small cap is a bit different, but we're, we're of the belief that small cap is set for uh, a renaissance and, you know, 2024, could it be the year of the small cap? Possibly. If not this year, maybe next year, but that's a big theme of ours. Another word that stuck out to me when you talked about the list was the word catalyst. And you're looking for potential catalysts in a lot of these names over the coming 12 months to see value unlocked. And for example, this might be a company, it might be a small cap. It's a size where a private equity firm could come in, take it over, purchase it at a premium to what the market's trading at. And that's how that value ends up getting unlocked. So what have you learned in your career about investing in this manner of looking for catalysts and looking for these near-term events that unlock value? Because of the way we look at companies through the lens of an acquirer and that they're cheap by an acquisition candidate's you know, standards, a fair amount of the names that we profile end up being acquired actually to from last year's list were a company called Univar and Hostess Brands were both both acquired. And being a takeout is never the sole reason for owning a business because or writing about a business because that could take a long time. But you want to have a reason for owning it. And, and my father has instilled in me, you can find the greatest company in the world selling at a cheap price, but if it doesn't ascend in value, doesn't do you any good. Uh, there has to be a reason, a change, something that will make the market recognize what you're seeing. And you know, realistically, does a catalyst happen within that one year? Who knows? I mean, that's just kind of an arbitrary calendar date. But we found it helpful. And there's different schools of thought. There are investors who I respect a lot who think value is its own catalyst. I just happen to you know, I guess it's the way I was taught. I think you want to want to look for these realizations and reasons for it. So we we try and tell a story. Why is the stock going to go up 
over a reasonable period of time. And generally, I mean, with the exception of the Forgotten 40, a reasonable period of time is, is two to three years. I can't help but think of Elon's Twitter takeover. And thinking about a private equity taking over a company, is there some sort of bias where they're looking at the share price and they're just like, hey, we're just going to tack on a 20% premium. So they're not necessarily looking at the true underlying value of the company. They're just saying, hey, we're going to buy out shareholders at a 20% premium there. What have you seen uh, in that regards from your experience? Or is there just a wide range of premiums that industry like private equity is looking to pay? I mean, I think it's a case by case basis. I mean, private equity have said some of the savviest investors there, while there's a lot of capital chasing deals, you know, they want to make money and uh, they want to own, the, they have to own the underlying business. So they have to like the underlying business. So I, I, you know, they have to usually have some sort of premium unless it's a take under, but I think it's a, it's a case by case basis. And you probably, the smaller in the cap spectrum you go, the higher the probably the premium it is because there it just might not be reflected in the price and it also depends is this an owner operated business you know they're not going to sell just for a 20% premium they're only going to sell when they think they're really getting more than fair value for the company you mentioned value potentially being a catalyst and i mentioned the private equity taking over a business and paying a premium for the company are there any other sort of catalysts that you seem to come up as a recurring theme there's lots of different catalysts i mean there's could they do a massive share buyback could they spin out a division an asset sale could they make an attractive acquisition one of the names I think we'll probably talk about, you know, interactive brokers. Is there a an octogenarian, an eighty-year-old man with you know, no heir apparent who owns a lot of stock? Sooner or later, himself or his his or her heirs sell the business. While well, well, the guy at interactive brokers, I think, is seventy-nine. He's, he's getting close to octogenarian status. It's there's lots of different reasons for a company to go up in in price. You just have to try and try and pinpoint it. Could it be included in an index? You know, one of the things, you know, we included, we had Uber last year, and, and I believe one of the catalysts we we cited was inclusion in the S&P 500, because they were finally, at least we thought, going to become gap profitable for a full year, which would lead to index inclusion. And that's that was a catalyst. And Uber is far from a traditional value stock. Right. I actually had a note here. I wanted to mention Uber. It was actually the biggest winner of last year's report for you. The stock rose by over 130%. And like you mentioned, it's not your kind of traditional value type play. Um, It's growing quite fast. And it's really in an industry that I think a lot of people view as a winner take all industry where the dominant player ends up taking most, if not all, all the profits. And Uber's market cap at the time of recording is 119 billion at the share price of $58 a share. So talk more about Uber. I'm really curious to hear, you know, despite it being the biggest winner of last year, it still remained on this year's list. Yeah, no, we're still riding with Uber. It's uh, can't promise another uh, 100% gain, but they're firing on all cylinders. They have a great CEO in Dara. The they're becoming more and more profitable. They have a huge moat. Uh, I mean, Lyft is competitively disadvantaged because it's a network effect business, and you know it's certainly not as cheap as last year. But you know, just because a stock goes up, not a reason to 
sell it. And just because a stock goes up is also not a reason not to include it in this year's list again, because we still like the business. We still think it's intrinsically undervalued. There's a long runway for growth. There's a, lots of things that they could be doing in terms of advertising, et cetera, that we like. And you know, it's one of these names that I think it gets thrown out a lot, but is a long-term kind of compounding business that you want to own these for the long term. You know, stocks like these could go down 30, 40%, but over the long period of time, I think it, the trend is up and to the right. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. And at the start of your report, you really talk about these broader themes going on in the economy. You aren't trying to invest based on the macro, but uh, you're aware of what's happening within the bigger picture. So what are some of the bigger themes you're looking at in today's market that help you decide the types of companies you want to own or the companies you want to cover in the Forgotten 40? It's, yeah, the macro is a dangerous thing because you can always scare yourself out of investing as, you know, as Buffett, you know, famously talks about all the bad things that happened in the 20th century, yet the Dow went from 41 to whatever it went to and, you know, People who invested uh, the day before uh, Black Monday, or the people who invested the day before the crash of '87, you know, as long as they held on did, for a long period of time, did, did fine. So you try and filter out the noise as best as you can, and don't let headlines scare you. Obviously, you have to be cognizant of things. And I'm someone who, when I'm buying stocks for myself or, or clients, I generally don't take a full 
position right away. As I think, you know, as I've learned, stocks can get a heck of a lot cheaper than you um, ever thought they could. And you want to have some dry powder there. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if that kind of answers the questions that you were looking for, but uh, happy to elaborate. Yeah, let's dive into one of the sections was on small cap stocks. Those have underperformed the S&P 500 since 2015 by around 6% per year. But interestingly, over the long run, small caps have actually tended to outperform the broader market. I pulled a stat here on small caps from 1926 through July of 2023. Small cap value has produced uh, four percentage points of alpha above the S&P 500. So I'm curious to get your take on the underperformance since 2015. Obviously, we've seen big tech sort of take over the index and lead a lot of those gains. What do you think are some of the other reasons for a four percentage point gap since 2015. Yeah, no, it's been a painful time to be in, in small caps. And yet the, uh, you know, some people recently have been blaming interest rates or the rise in interest rates for that. But obviously, there are a long period of that time where interest rates were basically zero, which, you know, so that's not really the culprit, in my opinion. I, I think you just have to go back. Historically, if you look at the period before the dot-com bust, there was a long period where the Russell significantly lagged the uh, S&P 500. And then, and I'm not saying that the, these periods are exactly analogous, but history tends to rhyme. The period after the dot-com bust, the S&P basically did nothing and the Russell shined. And I think we're going to enter a period such as that. And that's a period where I think stock pickers like us should do quite well, especially those who, who gear towards smaller cap names. And one more part on the broader theme section I thought was quite interesting. It was the presidential election year. That's 2024. There were some interesting stats on that. I'd be curious if you have those up and you'd be able to share what a presidential election year means to you as a value investor. Basically, the presidential election years are, are the second best performing years, I believe, in the presidential election cycle. And you know, we get a lot of the data from I, I buy each year the the Stock Traders Almanac, which is it, it's a great read. You got a lot. I mean, I'm one of these people who like um, just statistics, and you know, while I don't invest by it, I, I think it's good to kind of learn what kind of historical patterns there are, but. One of the ones that I thought was interesting was regardless of which party is the ultimate victor, in 16 of the past 18 presidential election years, the last seven months in total have seen gains in the S&P 500. But there are big exceptions. The, the two exceptions were in 2000, where the results were delayed of the presidential election. I, and I really hope that's not the case this year. And the other one, it was during the 2008 financial crisis, and I hope that as well. Uh, that doesn't occur as well. But you know, the, the S&P does better when there's a sitting president in office running for re-election. So there's lots of things that you can glean from history. And you know, it's worth noting that, the, that the, over the last couple of years, if you had invested the way kind of the Stock Traders Almanac had for presidential election years, you would have done quite well. So, but at the end of the day, though, I'm, I'm a stock by stock basis guy. Uh, I look at each individual company. What is it worth? What's the catalyst? You know, how are we going to get paid? But you know, it's, it's important to be aware of all these other things. I can't help but 
think of Munger who recently passed and just show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. And generally during election years, it seems that governments tend to be more accommodative to markets. Yes. And then the year after the election, I think is the worst part of the cycle because people realize all those great promises aren't going to occur. Um, So it's it's amazing that this happens pretty consistently, but it does. But the one thing I would say is 2024 does not look like a typical election year, although maybe I don't know what a typical election year looks like. So I think all bets are out the window on it, you know, and people who are strategists, they got 2024 for the most part, uh, 2023 for the most part, dead wrong. Nothing that they said occurred would. So I would be wary of making strategic calls for the year. I think you're better off being you know, more strategic in the stocks that you pick and not your macro outlook. Right. I recently saw a tweet that looked at all the big banks, all these big firms and their outlook for how the S&P 500 would end in 2023. Like hardly any of them predicted a gain of over 10%, yet the S&P was up over 20% on the year. Yeah, no, if you were going, you know, everyone thought, say, be defensive in, in 2023 and by dividend paying stocks and all these other things that were the, the laggards. And I just think, listen, there's lots of different ways to invest. I just, to me, it makes more sense to know about the companies you're investing in. You know, one thing, you know, just going back about, you know, the outlook for the year and, and things such as that, that I think is important to know, you know, one of the things you might have noticed in the Forgotten 40 is an absence of energy names. Those are names that we've historically have avoided over the last couple of years, as energy has been the you know the favorite, I think it's the best performing sector since the the market bottomed after you know during COVID. Take a ten year view; it's been a horrible place to invest. They're capital destroying businesses, cyclical. So we you know while a lot of value investors think there is value in in energy, you know maybe I'll be completely wrong, but it's one that I would avoid. And, and another reason is you have to be right twice. Ideally, you want to buy a stock and hold it for long periods of time and let the magic of tax deferred compounding happen. And with energy names, kind of have to trade in and out of them, and that's tax inefficient. So it's something we avoid. Right. And there's just much more of a human element where you not only have to decide when you're going to buy, you have to decide when you're going to sell. And the more decisions you have to make, the tougher things can be. I wanted to transition here to talk about one of the names on the Forgotten 40. It's Interactive Brokers. It really appealed to me. I'm actually an avid user of Interactive Brokers, and I actually use it for all of my stock accounts. So I firsthand can say I'm a big fan of the platform. I don't own any shares, but long term, it's actually really been a phenomenal stock. I just looked in your research. You pointed that as of October 2023, they grew their number of accounts by over 20% year over year. And they've just seen impressive growth just like top to bottom in their business. And if you're not familiar with Interactive Brokers, essentially, it's just a digital platform to buy and sell stocks and they have great fees and I think they do a really great job. But, uh, you know, stock investing, there's plenty of firms that do what Interactive Brokers does. Like so many people are familiar with Vanguard, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, all these, you know, these names that uh, people are a part of. But most people are probably less familiar with Interactive Brokers. So I'm curious to get your take on how they're able to differentiate themselves with the service and what feels sort of like a commodity like business. 
Yeah, I, I think he's done a fantastic job of growing this business. And it looks like they have, and, you know, going back to those word compounders, you know, years of many years of 20% plus account growth. And in the US, it's essentially a commoditized business with Fidelity and Schwab. But that's if you just want to kind of invest in the US, the interactive brokers platform, you know, is easy with currency conversions, it's easy to invest throughout the world. Also, most of their accounts are, or a vast majority are held outside the US where people actually still do pay commissions because payment for order flow, which is how Fidelity and Schwab are able to offer zero commission trading, it's illegal. So, and should remain so. And what they've noticed was they do have a, a model where there's free commissions, but yet within there, but you get worse execution and they've had very little uptake on it. So there's value in what they do. They have low cost margin lending, you know, lots of different things that make people want to use them. And, and their technology is fantastic. They try to automate everything possible. So it's, and they're really growing in the um, hedge fund space, especially the ones that are $50 million and, and below of funds. So there's lots to like about it. And we like these businesses that can continue to grow for, like an Uber, continue to grow for years and years and years and have a huge runway for success. And it's, you know, I think, and if you can buy them at a reasonable multiple, I don't have the multiple right in front of you, but it's, it's significantly below its historic one. Over time, if you are a patient, generally good things happen. Yeah, your report shows a PE of just under 15, and this was released yeah. in December 13th, 2023. And just the 2023 growth fiscal year, revenues grew from 3 billion to 4.3 billion. Operating income grew from 2 billion to 3.1 billion. So it's a very highly profitable business, unlike Uber is kind of just crossing that uh, threshold. But Interactive Brokers has been profitable for quite a long time. Yeah, no, it's a history of profitability. They have a, they also have a pristine balance sheet. It's a lazy balance sheet. I mean, they need some of it as part of their, for their business, but those are also the catalyst. Maybe they increase their dividend significantly or do a, a big share buyback. There are things that they could do. As I said, the CEO uh, or the, the founder is almost 80 years old. Does he sell this company to another one? You know, there's a lot to like there. And, it's one of these that I think are, um, obviously, I wish we had this show 10 years ago and, and people had invested in, in interactive brokers as it's been a fantastic performer. Yeah. The founder who's 79 years old, he owns 68% of the shares and then insiders overall own 76.2% of shares. And when I was looking back at uh, interactive brokers history, it seems like they've sort of gone through a transformation type period, whereas roughly a decade ago, they launched this online trading portion of their business and then they transition away from uh, whatever they were doing prior to that. They were an options market maker type of a business and they've switched and, um, and it was the right move and people gravitate towards them and you know, their marketing hasn't been particularly effective. They, they've just been growing via word of mouth, which is the way you want to grow your business. Obviously, you would love to have great marketing too, but the fact that if one person tells another means you have a good product out there and yeah, it's a name that we like. Do you know what markets they're primarily growing in? Oh, I mean, outside the U.S., you know, they they're growing in Australia, they're they're growing in Europe, they're in Asia. It's it's kind of across the board. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com kyle you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things how do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies yeah so i used to have a ton of issues with this and that was until i started using yahoo finance Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Yeah. And another thing that sort of sticks out to me about this industry is the switching costs seem to be 
somewhat high. I'm speaking from experience where I call my broker. I'm like, how the heck do I get this transferred over to interactive brokers? And they just make you jump through all these hoops. They called five different people just to try and make it happen. So that was quite annoying to be honest, but uh, the stickiness, once you have a happy customer, they aren't, they really have no incentive to leave when they're getting low fees. Uh, They get offered everything they need within the platform they're on at that time. Well, especially in one of the areas that they're trying to grow in these uh, like RIA space, where those are extremely sticky because once you're you have all your clients signed up, where you are now the custodian and broker of record for them, to no one wants to, to have an excuse for a client to, to leave, and that gives you an excuse. So it's it's a really good yeah, it's a good business. High switching cost. It's it's a very very different business than Fidelity and Schwab. You noted the uh, enormous runway they have. Here I'm looking at the report. 2.5 million accounts are under interactive brokers. Charles Schwab, not a direct comparison, you're right. They have 34 million accounts and then Fidelity has 43 million. I'm curious to get your take on... Obviously, the U.S. competitive landscape is pretty tricky given we can have zero trading fees at a lot of these firms. What does the competitive landscape look like outside the U.S. and how that looks, given that zero commission trading is illegal in many of these markets? Yeah, it significantly advantages interactive brokers because they have, they're they the low cost providers. They built the infrastructure, they've, they, they've built the technology, and they have a great platform. So it's favorable. They're growing much faster, uh, high, sing- high uh, single digit growth, you know, in the U.S., which is far below what it is outside the U.S. So it's it's something that yeah that will continue to to grow it. I wanted to also mention Howard Hughes, another company outlined in your report, ticker HHH. Bill Ackman has actually been quite active in this stock. At the end of Q3 2023, Ackman's firm Pershing Square had a $1.2 billion stake in the company, and he's been purchasing shares throughout the year. And it looks like over half of his shares were accumulated in the drop in March of 2020 when the stock got hammered from $120 all the way to as low as 40. And according to your report, Ackman's firm Pershing Square owns 37% of Howard Hughes. So talk to us about what you're seeing in this name. This is a name that Ackman made a lot of money in. It was from general growth properties and after the financial crisis. And Howard Hughes is a master plan community developer in really favorable areas of the country, Texas, Nevada, Phoenix, Los, um, Hawaii. And you'd mentioned that he bought a lot of his shares during COVID. And that was I think, out of an abundance of caution. The company didn't want to have any liquidity issues. So they, it, he's chairman of the company. They issued shares and he was by far the largest buyer of it. And he got it. He bought it in the 50s. It's now in the 80s. Uh, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't a great deal, but like you didn't know what was happening with COVID at the time. And he wanted to make sure the company was alive to you know, fight another day. And shareholders were given the same opportunity to buy shares as, as well. So uh, he's allowed to buy up to, I believe, 40% of the company. He, every time the stock gets below 75, it seems that he buys more. So there's you know, sort of an Ackman put in the $75 range. It wouldn't shock us if he takes the company private or 
if he merges it with his open-ended, you know, publicly traded fund, because he wants that to be listed in the US and you need an operating business. I don't know exactly how the mechanics of that would work, but that's been a long rumored thing that would happen. But either way, they have tons of uh, they have thirty, I think thirty-six thousand acres of raw land to develop. Thirty-six thousand acres. They have a long runway to increase net operating income for years to come. There's also the catalyst where they also own the South Street Seaport in Manhattan and some other assets in Las Vegas that they're spinning those out into a separately publicly traded company in 2024. And that should make it a pure play master plan community, which you know hopefully will give it a higher valuation. And maybe instead of spinning it out, someone ends up buying it. Who knows? I'm talking about the, the spun off part. And it, it's also, it's not particularly well covered on Wall Street. About five analysts cover it. Uh, and if you look at other home builders or you know, other you know, REITs, uh, they're significantly more... I mean, they're, and they're, they're not a home builder. They really are a seller of land, but they, they have much less coverage, which leads to valuation discrepancies. You mentioned 37,000 acres of raw land. And it's quite interesting to think about that aspect because it requires some digging to figure out, okay, how much is all this land worth? You got Phoenix, Nevada, Hawaii. How much research do you guys do in terms of figuring out how much all this is really worth and figuring out a fair value for the overall company? Because I think some investors can sort of get into trouble and assume, okay, Nevada land, it's probably worth this much. And, you know, just kind of oversimplifying things and land values just across, you know, different areas of a city can just, you know, change so, so much. So yeah, talk more about the land. Well, yeah, and land is you know at historical cost, so the balance sheet is not much help. But we, in our initial initiation report, we went through all the different properties and what they're worth. And yeah, no, it's it's a ton of digging. It's a it's a ton of work. Our team does a a fantastic job with that. And generally, we use very conservative assumptions. We'd rather be surprised on the upside. And do they generally just reinvest everything back into? redeveloping these or how does the capital allocation look? Well, that's what also makes them unique. They're not a REIT, so they don't have to dividend back everything. So they invested into the company, which is also a competitive advantage. And they, they do it and they grow it. And it's a you know, virtuous cycle where they're, uh, they're able to control the supply of land within an individual community. So they, they build one of these master plan communities. They make it nice and sell X amount of land to developers, which then, and commercial operations, which then makes the raw land that they have there even more valuable. And they keep doing that. So they, they keep a tight lid on supply and demand of, of supply of the raw land. So they're very strategic of what they do. And you know, one of the things is it, it probably shouldn't be a public company because you have to take a 10, 15, 20 year time horizon for these type of investments. But you know, it's selling at a, a decent discount to what we perceive NAV to be. And I think NAV will grow significantly over time as they develop more land. And then is there any more near-term catalysts that stand out to you? I could see some investors just looking at the current net operating income and plugging a multiple on that. Is there anything with you know, maybe in the near term that might be more so of a catalyst outside of a takeover? Yeah, well, I think uh, they're spinning out the South Street Seaport this year 
as well as some assets they own in Vegas, including a part of a minor league baseball team, I, I believe. So that's a catalyst and that, that could make it more of a pure play type of company and analysts can do a better job of, of figuring out what it's worth. There were a couple of other names I wanted to mention that I was sort of just looking at the valuation of some of these names. One of them was Markel. It seemed to be one of the more undervalued names on, on your list. And at the time of your research, you estimated the intrinsic value of Markel to be around 24.88. And that valuation was based on some of the parts and the share price at the time of publication was 13.88. So that implies potential upside of 79%. And immediately my mind thinks about how companies like Markel and Berkshire Hathaway have sort of always had this conglomerate discount. So I'm curious to get your thoughts more generally on investing in this manner of some of the parts or a discount to intrinsic value, how that tends to work out over time, given you guys have done this type of research since the 90s. I mean, the two examples you gave of conglomerate discounts People have owned Markel or, and certainly Berkshire for, for 30 years, even if it traded at a discount to what it, it should be, a, you know, because it's a conglomerate, have still been handsomely rewarded. So, you know, if you buy great companies, generally good things will, will happen. You just want to make sure you have good stewards of capital. I, Tom Gaynor, who runs Markel, good investor, very conservative, runs a good operation. They started something called Markel Ventures. I don't know, uh, 10, roughly 10 years ago or so, where they're investing in private companies and you know, they're dubbed a baby Berkshire. And you know, it's one of these, they're growing book value over time. And you know, uh, in a conservative, prudent manner, they have a, a, a nice stock portfolio that, that's done quite well. And I think the private equity part of the business, the ventures part will become more and more meaningful. They just need to do a better job of underwriting as it hasn't been, hasn't been ideal for them. And uh, we had talked outside of this that we're both friends with Chris Mayer. And Chris mentioned on our show that he solely focuses on compounders and he quit investing in names based on some of the parts, discount to peers, et cetera. He said he, it, it took him quite a bit of time to sort of make that transition. And it's quite interesting just learning about all these different approaches of how people think about risk and valuation and time horizon, all that. Well, Chris is a great guy and a great investor. And, you know, he wrote a, a fantastic book called 100 Baggers, which I, I recommend everyone read. And he's right. You know, you want to invest in these compounders. And I don't want to invest in something that's a sum of the parts story that's a mediocre business. That's just one part of it. You know, in some ways, you know, Markel, I mean, sorry, Howard Hughes is a sum of the part play business. But I also like it's selling at a discount. But I also like the underlying business and this growth prospect. So you can you want you, you can have your cake and eat it too in this. You just have to be very selective. Chris has the advantage of running an extremely concentrated portfolio where I think he probably has ten or fifteen stocks in it. So when you have to pick forty, it's a little a little harder to to do that. But yeah, no, I fully agree. You want it's not just oh, this is selling a stock is selling at fifteen times earning and has historically sold at twenty. It's pure sell at twenty. Let's let's buy it in, in hopes that there's you know mean reversion. Well, it could also go the other way where their peers just don't do as well. So it's you want to have a reason for owning the underlying business, not just these special situations. 
I fully agree. It's uh, why I wanted to mention interactive brokers and Markel, like Markel especially, they have uh, you know these diversified revenue streams. You have Tom Gaynor, just a very long track record of treating shareholders fairly and being a good capital allocator. And then they have the stock portfolio. And then one point you made in your report in regarding to the venture side is uh, they haven't been able to make as many deals with lower interest rates and just so much competition. But now with higher interest rates and the really strong balance sheet they have, it's their time to be more opportunistic and finding those deals and uh, putting that cash to work. Yeah. And what I like about them is they, they didn't chase things. They didn't try and buy uh, it's not like a private equity firm where you know they have to invest the money. You know they were fine just being prudent and and waiting for their time. And their time will come where there'll be less competition for private equity. People will, would want to sell to them, and they'll be the buyer of choice. So yeah, no, they're uh, it, it's a it's a great operation, and they're they're doing a good job, and they're becoming more and more widely known kind of in, in investing circles as well. So it was interesting to read about some of these very public assets in your report, you know, companies that people see in the limelight, but they just don't really think to invest in or even know it's an option to invest in these. Uh, One of which is Madison Square Garden Sports Corporation, which you state based on the intrinsic value calculation, you see around 99% upside from the $171 level. Talk to us about what you're seeing in this one. Madison Square Garden is a name we've known for a long period of time. It's controlled by the Dolan family and it suffers from the quote unquote Dolan discount. It was initially part of Cablevision and they've done a, bear, a variety of spinouts. And Madison Square Garden Sports owns the Knicks and the Rangers are the primary assets of it. And you may or may not have noticed there's been a lot of activity in publicly traded sports teams or in in sports teams, private equities that got involved in a big way. Sovereign wealth funds have gotten involved in a big way. And right now, the enterprise value of Madison Square Garden Sports is roughly four and a half billion dollars or so. The Knicks alone, you know, Forbes values at like six and a half billion dollars. The Rangers are close to three, utilizing what historical premiums to Forbes value. You get a much, much higher stock price. And people will say, oh, well, Dolan will never sell the team. One, I would say never say never. He, he did sell Cablevision at a great price, by the way, at a great time. And two, if Mark Cuban can sell the Dallas Mavericks, who everyone thought he would be a or sell a majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks, it's not far-fetched to think that James Dolan can do the same thing. But there are other ways that they can unlock shareholder value absent a sale. They could sell one of the teams. They could sell a stake in one of the teams, which is what's happening with the you know Toronto Maple Leafs organization. And so there's lots of ways to win. They can buy back a lot of shares. They can pay, they've already paid one special dividend. They can pay another one. So there's a lot to like. I think you have downside protection and these are valuable assets. And as at least in my opinion, as long as there are billionaires with big egos, the price of these sports teams are just going to increase in value. They're a scarce asset. There's only roughly 30 NBA teams. And that's also a um, catalyst where you know, it's rumored that they're going to do um, expand by one or two teams and that there's going to be an expansion fee and that will be divvied up by all of the teams and uh, the Knicks will, will share 
in that revenue stream. In addition, they have, uh, I believe in a year or so, their media rights for the NBA come up. That's, they're gonna have a, it hasn't been renegotiated in about 10 years. There's gonna be a significant bump up there. So there's lots of reasons why the stock could go up significantly, even absent a sale of the teams. Talk more about the Dolan discount. Is it just a factor of him not wanting to sell or is there something else there? Oh, I mean, for those of your listeners who are in the New York area, they know all too well the trials and tribulations of, of James Dolan. There's actually a great podcast series out there called Reign of Error, which details the Dolan empire and what they have done. And you know, they've been terrible, terrible operators of at least the Knicks. They, they've been, you know, until recently, they, they, they've had terrible record. They've owned the team since the 1990s, and, and he's probably one of the least liked people in New York. He's done things like, yeah, they, you might have seen his stories with facial recognition going into Madison Square Garden, where anyone who is suing them or worked at a law firm that is suing them can't go in. He does not get good press, and that gets reflected in, in the stock price. But I look at, you know, as we followed Cablevision and owned Cablevision for long periods of time, we made a lot of money and our, our clients made a lot of money in Cablevision and he eventually sold it. I think if you take a longer term perspective, these discounts can turn into opportunities. Great. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you joining me on the show today. Before I let you go, I want to give you a handoff to how the audience can learn more about the Forgotten 40 and learn more about your firm and any other resources you'd like to share. First, it, it was a pleasure being on your show. It was it was a lot of fun, and I, I can't believe you know an hour or whatever it is. It kind of just flew by. Yeah, for those who want to know more about the Forgotten Forty, if you just go to BoyerResearch.com forward slash twenty twenty four, you get all the information you you need about the Forgotten Forty, and including some samples from this year's. And you know, one of the things that we did it's new to Boyer in in twenty twenty three was we started a sub stack that has paid and, and premium content. And it's we put it up basically a stock idea a month for paid subscribers. And that's at uh, boyerresearch.substack.com. Yeah, I, I'd encourage people to go there or just go to boyervaluegroup.com to learn more about what we do. And you know, we're, we're very different than, than traditional Wall Street. And you know, we'd love to hear from you. Well, if anyone who's listening enjoyed the chat and they're interested in the Forgotten 40, I'll be sure to get that linked in the show notes. So Jonathan, thanks for again for joining me. Uh, I really enjoyed reading through your research and it was great having you on the show. It's always fun as a stock picker to be able to look through a list of that has a ton of research behind it. And you can kind of pick and choose the types of companies you're looking for, which is amazing because you have quite a variety to pick from. And just thank you for coming on and thank you for all that you did. Thank you. It was a pleasure and I look forward to staying in touch and thanks for your time. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.